McNulty standing for anyone to get up above Cargill and find Bennett. It's into the box. McNulty cut back for Roberts. It's Gary Roberts from Bosby. Bosby are leading in the fourth round of the FA Cup. Mark McNulty, but a good chance by Doyle for McNulty on the edge. Mark McNulty oh, short yes. for Bosby. Smashes it past McCormack. One by Doyle. Finished by the returning Mark McNulty. First left blood for Bosby. They're in dreamland early here at Bratton. There's a through ball to Jamal Lowe. Jamal Lowe's onside. The flag stayed down. Jamal Lowe. Nonchalant. Fantastic. Brilliant. Pompey will be promoted at this rate. That is it. Pompey are champions. They won League Two in the most dramatic of circumstances. The PO4 podcast with Hugh Bunce. Proud to be Pompey. Hi Pompey fans and welcome to PO Forecast episode 101. Well it's a disappointing game against Blackpool but Pompey bounced back on Tuesday against Oxford and grab a win. Joining me on the podcast today is Freddie Webb. How are you Freddie? Doing really well Hugh, thank you. Yeah, but um, mixed bad for Pompey. Two, re- uh, two results. In the end getting the three points on Tuesday was vital and we'll go over all the things why. But yeah, in terms of my personally my week it's been very good. I hope yours has been as well, and I hope all the listeners are uh, are doing well out there. Yeah, my week's not been too bad. Actually, today, I actually left my house and had to go into work. For... Wait, you left your house? Yeah, I know. That doesn't usually God. happen. <laughs> I've got this sort of cave system going on where you know, people live. No. Um, yeah, I actually had to go into work today for something that's called business critical, according to the government, which meant that I actually got to see a lot of people for the first time that I haven't seen in, in months. So... Um, that was quite nice and refreshing, but apart from that, we're back talking Pompey and, you know, that's what we really enjoy. All right, let's get on with it. So, first of all, we're going to briefly talk about the game against Blackpool. Following on from that, we're going to talk about the a lot more optimistic result against Oxford. And then we put a question out to you guys following that goal, that game against Oxford. Is Ronan Curtis the man to step in and solve all Pompey's striking woes? Is he the man to step up, number nine, given the shirt? Is it Ronan Curtis? Thank you for everyone who messaged in. It's really appreciated. And there's lots of different views there. So me and Freddie will be discussing them. And then we've got Matt from the Jills in the Blood footlog. He comes on the show. He's a great guy. And he speaks about the Gillingham game, um, expectations for Gillingham in the season, and everything you need to know about the game against Gillingham. Right, let's get into it, Freddie. The game against Blackpool. We previewed it. We all knew it's going to be a close game. And Blackpool shut us down the first time they played against us. Well, it happened again. Yeah, I hope we get to talk about this match briefly because uh, it was dreadful. It was literally dreadful. It was quite similar to... It was the only... There were some similarities in the Bristol Rovers game, except the fact that in this time, Portsmouth didn't even create any clear ch- chances to miss. The Nicolaisen shot that was cleared off the line, yes, you could argue that. Had a, a nine out of ten times that goes in the back of the net, but this time it didn't, fair enough. And then after that, Portsmouth created very little. Very, very little. And then the subs in the second half didn't really change a lot. And the second half for me... Also playing that, they didn't deserve to get a point out of that game. They really didn't. Um, there was a lack of creativity. A lot of players rushing, rushing when they were in possession. 
I could tell there was a lot of tired legs as well. There was a lot of shuffling, shuffling the ball to the wing and then long balling it to the both wingers who were double marked because obviously they were because that's all Portsmouth did the entire game. It was frustrating. Yeah, if you want to know a bit more about that game, for some reason you might do. I wrote an opinion article on pompeynewsnow.com talking about squad rotation and subs uh, because we'll go on to it, Hugh. Uh, what did you think of the subs in this game? I thought they were ineffectual. So uh, everything in the game was pretty ineffectual. Byers going out to the right wing. That was weird. Why? <laughs> Why? He he is a central midfield player. You can play him in a cam role if you want. You can play him in the middle of the park. Good as well. He's good at the centre midfield role. He's a bit wasted in defensive midfield. He can play there as a deep line playmaker. He's not a right winger. All right. And just in case you're listening, Kenny, he's also not a right back. Um, and Callum was on a booking as well. And he, and you could tell. He 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 hasn't been the same player as he was earlier in the season, literally because he's knackered. His legs were gone. It was, it was entirely obvious, and I thought he would have been sub. And I think a lot of players, a lot of players in that squad, were just simply knackered. That's why they weren't playing very well and not playing the best that we know they can they can do. Let's be honest, Andy Cannon needed a rest then. And you can't play back-to-back games, you know, weekends, Tuesdays. Yeah, so when, you're not, when, you're not, when you're not used yeah. to playing that over a whole season. Cannon's not been a regular fixture in this team. Now he is, definitely. Love Andy Cannon. Give him a, give him a week off. Yeah, give he needs, he needs a to give off. a lot of these players a week off. Do you know that Portsmouth have only got two weeks where it isn't Saturday, Tuesday from now to the rest of the season? And they're going to play over 50 games this season. They played over 50 games at the two previous seasons. All of that is in the opinion article as well, if you're interested. Horrible plugs done and out of the way. And then the latest substitutions, Jordy Hewler and Ellis Harrison coming on. Yes, I would have made those subs. But A, they were made too late. And B, they there was no change in tempo. There was no change in ideas to fit the players coming on. No, there wasn't. And it was disappointing. Let's quickly talk about the Blackpool goal. Charlie Daniels, for me, at fault for this goal. He's out of position. He's way too far off the pitch. I don't know if it's because he hasn't got the mobility to get back, but he's getting back extremely slowly jogging backwards Nicolaisen's had to push up to cover him he gets turned at the halfway line goes through on goal Raggett I mean he does some great things doesn't he but this one-on-one defending is not his is not his strong point no no we've talked about that many times he's not (coughs) he's bad he's good at man marking when it's a player who's not in possession because uh, then he can get in front of them. He can make those interceptions, win those win those crosses. He's good at that. But when he's against a player like Yates, sprinting into the penalty area with the ball, I mean, my God, he had the. It's not as if Yates skinned him. He just shifted the ball slightly on the on the on his same foot as well. Ragger had the turn the turning circle of a right robin. I'm sorry, it was it was bad. And after that, I, I would have benched him, not because he's played badly, because again. He looks exhausted. He looks visibly exhausted at 90 minutes. He, he, I, th- I think he's top for minutes played. He's a top Portsmouth player for minutes played. He needs a rest. He needs a rest for sure. And what I want to know as well, do you think giving away that penalty in the shocking, sort of shocking performance against Bristol Rovers, do you think that mentally had something really weighing on him? You know, Yates is quick. He's in the box. He shifts the ball. Do you think from that basis, he just doesn't want to get too tight to the man? He doesn't want to risk giving another penalty away. 
I don't think so. I, I think because uh, very rarely we've seen Sean Ragger have these sorts of games where he makes a mistake in games, but he always he always bounces back and goes on a run of form. So it's not necessarily. It's the problem is it, it, it happens intermittently, but it, it still happens. I wouldn't blame him entirely for the goal. If if Daniels is in the right place, it wouldn't have happened in the first place. If Nicolaisen didn't get skinned on the halfway line, it doesn't happen either. So it's not entirely his fault. But yeah, just double check the minutes. No, it's definitely not. Uh, his double check the minutes after. Uh, Tuesday's game, Sean Raggett's on 2,610 minutes. So he's played 29 games, 29 starts, every single game. The only the only other players to do that are Craig McGilvery and Tom Naylor and Callum Johnson slightly under that. So yeah, you think, you look at those names, you're not dropping Craig McGilvery, obviously. You can't drop Tom Naylor because Portsmouth don't have another centre midfielder like him. And you look at it and you might give Johnson the old Tuesday night game for Huula, for Minoga, sorry, if you wanted to. Huula, I think that's, that's that sounds like a bit of an interesting jacket move. <laughs> <laughs> Freudian slip there. <laughs> but no, um, yeah, uh, and with Jack Watmore on the bench, you can easily give Ragat one game off. You can give him one game off or two games off if you wanted. And speaking of Huula, it's a shame he didn't have, he didn't have much impact on the game, but that was mainly because and Harrison didn't either against Blackpool, but that's because the midfield was nowhere near. It was as if the midfield didn't exist. So let's move on to the game against Oxford. Thank God. I want, I want to cheer up a little bit here. Thank for God. The, you know, <laughs> the, the episode 100, you know, we had all the blues of the Bristol Rovers game. And then we moved into the blues of the Blackpool game. So let's get on to this Oxford game because Pompey managed to keep a clean sheet. They managed to score a goal get a win against a team like Oxford, who, let's be honest, are better than the other two teams we've lost against. They're a very good team, aren't they? They've definitely got one thing that those other teams haven't. They played through Portsmouth a few times in this game, you could tell. Cameron Brannigan in the midfield, excellent player. Twice in the first half, they made a through ball, which cut open Portsmouth's two banks of four. I wish Portsmouth could do that sometimes. And Craig McGilvery was there to make the, uh, the stop most of the time. But yeah, I thought defensively, much better. Much better defensively. Lee Brown coming back in the back four, I thought he stabilised things very nicely and he offered enough to go forward where you think it's not the detriment. The back four looks settled. Nicolaisen, he's made... I was wondering what you thought of this. He He's passing. claiming a first-team spot at the moment. He's passing. I looked at Joff Taylor's... Uh, graph on his passing he made the most pro- uh, progressive passes and had the highest passing accuracy for that game and that was obvious he, he's very very comfortable on the ball yeah if you're into what looking at those sort of passing matrices and uh, stats generally check out um josh taylor stuff is it at pompey stats really I think it yes is. it is yeah go check it out we retweeted it on the pompey news now site as well so check it out on our twitter feed looking at that though nicolaisen in particular his passing playing at the left centre-back role and his distribution is really good, isn't it? He he can pick a pass, and we've been talking about this for quite a long time, on the level of, Portsmouth if he was here now, yeah. Burgess gone, Clarkie gone, we needed someone to step in and be able to put their foot on the ball, because as good as someone like Raggett is, he's not going to be that passing defender, is he? And Nicolaisen in this game, if you look at how he passed the ball out, actually managed to break through some of the, the midfield, basically, in the Oxford team. Yeah, precisely, because the midfield, the midfield was strong for Oxford and having a player like Nicol Eisen, you need that. Especially for, especially for like Portsmouth, otherwise you just shuffle it to the full-back and it's very easy to defend against and that's why you force the long balls where Portsmouth lose possession. 
I'll say one thing though, next game, do you want Watmore and Nicolaisen together? Because I think that's a partnership. That's a cultured centre-half partnership that reminds me, obviously, of like Clark and Burgess, but not as good. But Watmore can... Uh, I think Watmore is a much better centre-half than both of them. And we'll talk on... We'll go on to say about should he get back in a team or not. But what do you think? Should Watmore and Nicolaisen be in the starting eleven on Saturday? I'd love to see those two together form a partnership. I would. I'm all I'm all for it. Two technically good defenders. What more solid? His positioning is also very good. Both good in the air. Nicolaisen looks like he can grab a goal here and there as well. I'd be I'd be tempted to say, yes, I want to start both of them. And it's not because of a real slight against Raggett at all. I think he's done very well this season. He's definitely improved a lot on where he was at the start of the season. As Per his usual sort of seasonal progression, he seems to get better when he plays with someone over time. But yeah, let I would like to see Jack Watmore come into the side straight away. I, I was a bit confused that he was left out of the side actually against Oxford. Mm, mm, I was as well. I don't see why. I think it's because they didn't want to. Um, I don't think it's even the fact of crushing Raggett's confidence by dropping him. I just think they rate him that highly that they wanted to start him which is fine, but you're seeing his form drop off now, in my opinion, simply because he can't play, because no player should be, be forced to play Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday from now until the end of the season. You need to give them at least one one game off. You have to. No, you have to give him time off. Let's not get to the end of the season, qualify for the playoffs again, and have a team that can't run and the slowest player in the team starts overtaking people like Marcus Harness or whoever who's actually got some pace on them. We need to rotate the squad enough so that when we get to this stage of the season where statistically it's much more likely to qualify for the playoffs than get automatics. Not saying it's, it's off, it's not. We'll talk about where we are on the table. But this team needs to be rested so they can play at their potential. And yeah. as you said before, we've got Saturday games, Tuesday games. The game's just going to keep flying on. So we need to make sure that we're prepared, not just for this game, not just that you pick the team who's necessarily the 100% best players available at the time. You need to do it based on on who's fit, who's ready, um, and who fits together. Let's talk about the goal, though. This is the exciting stuff. Let's not worry about rotating the squad, etc., because first goal in league football... For senior men's football, is what he's saying. I think that's how, you put, how we put it forward. But Harvey White gets his first competitive goal in men's football. He seems pretty happy about it. I know he gave about a three and a half minute interview after the game. Go and check it out on the Portsmouth feed if you're interested. He, uh, he, he, he looked like a player who scored his first senior goal. He looked like the happiest boy on the pitch. If he wasn't being interviewed, he'd be jumping up and down, jumping into the fans if they were there. It was an excellent moment, wasn't it? Yeah, congratulations, Harvey White. And from all the Spurs people we spoke to about it, apparently he's the right top lad. So, you know, really happy for the kid. And to be honest, he deserved the goal, didn't he, of that performance? He played very well. Yeah, I was surprised because when I first looked to the side, I thought, oh, they're setting up in a 4-3-3 to try and combat uh, the midfield because Oxford control it a bit. And I thought, oh, that's fine. And then John T from Hampshire, Hampshire Live tweeted... <clears throat> Oh, it's a four-four-two, and I thought, hang on, does that mean that Harvey White's on the wing? Because uh, Curtis was up front, and that was very strange. But he, he, all the energy made that he managed to make that spot work very well. 
But for the goal, he drifted inside. It was partially from the throw, and great cross by Callum Johnson, curving yeah. away from everybody. And that's what we at the right height. And Harvey White, Harvey White simply gambled, got his head on it, and it was an excellent goal. The run made it, didn't it? And what I want to say is it was a game where we're playing Oxford, it was a bit congested, etc. The game could have gone either way. And we'll come on to the Oxford chances later in the game. Harvey White does what Guy Whittingham has been screaming out for on the commentary. He gambles. He gets, he gets, he has a look up. He sees Callum Johnson on the right. Callum Johnson is a very good cross of the ball. If he gets into the right situations, got some very good plays, and you watched him play before at Accrington. And I feel like he's getting forward more and more as he grows in confidence in his position. Harvey White looks up and he makes that late run. These late runs from the midfield is what we've been crying out for. Cannon, just make that run into the box. Gamble. <coughs> take a chance. Harvey White's not a big player to get to run into the box and head it across the goal with that sort of technique. It's not about bigness. It's about gambling for the run. This is how you score goals. It's not just get it to the striker and then eventually he might be able to tap it in or create something from nothing or Curtis has to shoot from outside the box or harness or... We're making this very difficult for ourselves by not making enough runs like this. Yeah, precisely. And, that, and that's what Portsmouth were good at at the beginning of the season. Yeah. Tom Naylor getting those goals from just outside the 20-yard line. The front, uh, the other members of the front four gambling on the edge of the penalty area. The midfield pushing up properly. I just I just think there's something, that, especially in second halves of games, I looked at the XG timelines. The XG timelines in the second half drop off a bit. And I genuinely think it's because players don't want to risk gambling and because they can't cover themselves. Uh, because that that's how you that's how Portsmouth let goals in like they did against Blackpool. Tell me what that Harvey White goal reminded me of. The sort of goal that Gareth Evans used to score two years ago, when he had the season of his life, where he would where every every time he would arrive at the edge of the penalty area, Hawkins winning a ball, Jamal Lyle, Ronan Curtis holding up the ball, Evans was there gambling at the edge of the edge of the penalty area every single time. Yeah, massively. Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty happy for the guy. I thought he did some really good runs anyway. Got himself into good positions in the box, joined the attack as well. And when you've got someone like Tom Naylor playing in that holding role, you you can do that. You can risk yourself to go forward as a midfielder and take a chance. So that was good to see. Okay, let's get on to the next player who pipped Harvey White for man of the match because of the end, the last minute or two of the game. Seven and a half minutes, whether it was stoppage time. My opinion was ridiculous, overrated, overinflated. I don't care about the Williams going down section. I think that's rubbish. I think we should seven and a bit minutes. Just mm. Don't see that. It was long, wasn't it? It, yeah. it felt like another half, didn't it? Watching Apparently, the ref, the uh, fourth official was from Banbury. That's my reason why, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's fake news. But the fact the fact is right is that Craig McGivery comes out, and I know you're going to write an article about why he's the best keeper in the league. Uh, yeah, yes, yes, it'll be it'll be a short one. Um, yep. However, so you can read it quickly. But yes, he is the best however, keeper in the league. Yeah. So for that last minute, Freddie, all I'm trying to say is Craig McGivery saves the day. Absolutely, <laughs> and he's done that a lot this season already. Um, prime, prime saves, key saves. It was the it was the long ball um, from Oxford, which they didn't do a lot of. Wonderful, what wonderful, just in front of the defensive line, the header went over. Uh, on the highlights it looks stupid but Raggett managing to get that touch where the ball's already behind him and he tries to stick the back leg out 
that actually, even though it looks ridiculous, it was actually a good bit of defending because it took it took the ball away from the striker. To He's trying to confuse extent. the striker, wasn't he? Yeah, I'm sure he was. You know, like <laughs> someone goes, next to you, it makes you jump when you try to do something. <laughs> it wasn't the desperate flick of the leg to try and try and look like he did something. Um, but no, Craig McGilvery, excellent one-on-one save. There was another save in there as well. Uh, but the one, the big one for me, the last action of the game that, yeah. header that he tips over the bar that was going straight in the corner Claws and you can see there. from Claws the Oxford players can't you you can see their reaction they're just like oh and if you can see on their goal cam they all thought that was going in and then he just pushes that over the bar magic love it Craig keep it up mate mm. very happy with that and that's what we're going to need to steal games your big players being your best players and sometimes your best players have to count and oh precisely yeah sometimes sometimes you can complain about uh, the keeper. The only reason why we Portsmouth haven't Portsmouth are getting these results is because Craig McGilvery's playing very well and standing on his head. I've been critical of that, but hey, he's... when you have the best goalkeeper in the division, and I'll keep on saying that, uh, it makes things a bit easier from a defensive point of view, doesn't it? It always does. Again, defensively, I thought I thought Portsmouth played quite well, and offensively, yeah, so so. The first half reminded me a bit of. Those playoff final games against Oxford, my God. Um, in terms of the XG, it was um, 1.14, which is low for Portsmouth compared to Oxford's 1.43. So Oxford didn't create a ridiculous amount of chances either, apart from in the last, uh, apart from uh, in, the, in the last throw right at the end. So even game, Portsmouth nicked it on their defensive capabilities, and we got a lot of questions about Ronan Curtis playing very well up front as well. I was wondering that could potentially be an option in the future, maybe. Yeah, and that's a good segue, which is why you're a pro on the podcast, Freddie, because I'm going to go into it now and say, <laughs> Kenny Jacket deployed Ronan Curtis up top with Ellis Harrison against Oxford. Is Curtis the striker that Pompey have been looking for? Well, who plays up front? We've been debating about it every week. Is this now? Is this the combination? Alfredo20 messages in. He says... Curtis looked good up front, but needs to control his temper. I'd start White again and see his class up against Oxford. Maybe give Marquis a run with Curtis as 4-4-2 got him scoring last time. Yeah, potentially. I would start White as well. Um, starting on the wing is still a bit weird. I wouldn't do it because, well, for example, when Jacob's pumped about fit, you always want him to start on that left wing. Uh, but yeah, I would, I would potentially giving Cannon a rest and playing White in there or Byers would be a good option. In terms of Curtis playing up front, I thought he had a solid game. It was obviously what Portsmouth were looking for. They they wanted to skip the midfield. Since Ellis Harrison was playing, there was a lot of long ball, which in this game with, with Oxford wanting to control the midfield a lot, I don't mind. It can work in certain circumstances. I remember when um, there's an opportunity in the second half around the 55th minute where Oxford had pushed so high up that their defensive line, the gap between their, their back four and the midfield was so high and then there was that one long ball straight to Ellis Harrison and Curtis was up there with him. There was full support there. Didn't turn into a clear-cut chance, but that's the sort of chance that you can make with Curtis and Harrison up front. Curtis battled very well. And I like the uh, uh, controlling the temper. I do like that in a player, though. It might be personal preference, but I like a player fully getting involved emotionally. Uh, sometimes he goes through too far. Yes, sometimes he he might. 
bitch at the referee a bit too much and get booked. But most of the time, I think it's fine. Uh, I think he's fully, he always fully focused on the football. Um, in reality, though, if you're talking about a player losing his temper, Marcus Harn is squaring up to Cam- Cameron Brannigan. <laughs> that was unexpected for me. I have no idea what that was here. Don't know, but I like it. It's again, I want some competitive fight in this team. You know, I, I don't want to be like, all right, yes, sir, no, sir. Let's get on with the game. Yeah, I shouldn't be focusing on being annoyed with you. No, get out there. Get out there and care about it. I don't care if you're caring about it. it involves waving your hands in the air or giving someone a, a proper look and, you know, giving the thing away. How do you do it? Get yourself out there and look like you're caring on the pitch. And Ronan Curtis, people can criticise him for whatever, but... You can't say the man doesn't care. He cares a lot. He's going to get out there and play. So there's a lot of people out there who are saying, oh, Ronan Curtis, is a, he's a moaner and he, oh, he should stop whinging. And I don't think that's the case at all. He obviously cares a lot about this football club. And let's not try and chain him by saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. Let him play his game. Um, no, you, you always love players who... <laughs> it's the sort of thing where I, I bet so many opposition fans are looking at Curtis and not liking him. Same with players like gobby in your face players but when they're on your team you always love having them because just of the it shows that they care and they're a nuisance other players focus on that rather than focusing on the game in front of them so. no absolutely gaff messaging he says i've been saying it for ages to be fair he has he's messaged into the podcast give him a go up top I thought curtis and harrison looked very lively last night they were to a certain extent um there was a one-on-one that Harrison had in the first half, which wasn't bad. Um, oh, just have to go in. Yeah. He didn't Mark make a hash Harrison, of it. Harrison, whoever made just <laughs> got to go in one-on-one. I know it didn't though, did it? Oh. No. But there weren't, I think the only problem was there weren't, they looked lively, yes, but there weren't that many clear-cut chances. There just weren't. Um, that was the issue. It depends where you fit, what the reason is. Do you think it's the pairing to a certain extent? But I think it's just the technical setup and the way Ports have looked to play. They were looking for the they were looking for the long ball to uh, catch Oxford out of position, and that could only happen maybe two, three times. Happened two or three times this game, and only uh, there was only that one clear cut chance from that. Really, it's not playing percentage football for me personally, and. I've noticed whenever Ellis Harrison does play, that's the route that Portsmouth always go down. I just think they need to be a bit more flexible to get the most out of those two. Yeah. Will Frisk messages in. He says, played well up there, as we all suspected he could. Think him and Harrison certainly give us the most power up front. Think Harness and Marquis make up a good pool of striking options. I think that's a good point. There is, We have got different types of players and different options up front. There's depth here, isn't there? Yeah, we it's talk like... about we talked to Matt from Jules and the Blood in a bit, and he talks about how they haven't got too much depth past the eleven. Spoiler alert. Well, Ports of do. We have a lot of strikers here, and people who can play up front as and different strikers. types of strikers, exactly. and different types of strikers to adapt to adapt to the to to whatever you got. The, you got the complete striker in John Marquis. Some people say he isn't, but they're wrong. They haven't looked at the stats like I have. You've got Ellis Harrison, the target, uh, the, the target man, who's a bit of a nuisance to defenders, who can who, who can play the ball a bit better. And then you've got Jordi Huula, who, in my opinion, when I've watched him, he's just an excellent counter-attacking pacey striker. And they, they can offer you a lot. And I 
think if he's given more minutes, he will score goals, personally. If you're looking to be very, very aggressive on the press, if the, if the team has the energy for that, Marcus and Huula are up front. Forget it. Marcus and Huula with Curtis and Harness or Williams as a front four, that's going to cause so many problems if they're all 100%, all 100% um, match fit, aren't they? Pressing against a back four like that. Massively. and Obviously, Marcus presses well. He presses from the front well, but he does need somebody to play alongside him. I, do you think and, he worked uh, well uh, and When Harness paired with him, when Harness paired with him, that worked really well. And I think Curtis is a similar player. So can do that. If he's on the left-hand side, he can still cut in on his right foot like he likes to do. Curtis has to... The difference is, though, I think with the two players, is Harness is very good at, at sort of close control and finding a little bit of space with a pass. I think Ronan Curtis is more of a direct player as a striker than Marcus Harness is between the two of them. Obviously, we haven't seen him play up front, really, with John Marquis at all. So I'm still unsure how that dynamic's going to work. John mm. Marcus playing, that, mm. playing the dynamic where he is this player who can be set up from Marcus Harness. He can be the player that the little delicate ball can be put through to him, as well as he can make himself some space knowing that there's going to be space created from the, from Marcus Harness's quick feet and movement. I don't know if Curtis and Marquis both want to be the player who's the striker playing together. Yeah, and I, well, that's why Williams and Marquis worked when they were both playing very well. Because Williams was automatically the creative player who most of the time dropped back to receive the ball. But sometimes he, he, he could do the striker role as well, to an extent. I do like that, though. It gives a bit more fle- flexibility. I don't think Marcus and Harrison, whenever they've been paired together, it looks a bit odd to me. I don't think that works. I'm not sure what you think. I'm not a big fan of the combination either. It, look, it looks clumsy. It looks like you've got two different systems of football the team would play with both strikers up front. And you're sort of playing a mishmash of the two of them. You're not really, you haven't got one direction. You're not going, oh, okay, let's play it up to Harrison and lay it off. And Marcus can, it, it doesn't seem to work. It's the team seem confused by those two players being on the pitch at the same time. They don't quite know what to do. I'd like to see Marcus play up top with a support player, but in a 4 4 2. Whether that's Curtis or Harness, we'll or have to see over time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Hawula, I want to see come off the bench earlier when Marcus isn't playing well. You can play Hawula up front with Marcus Harness or you can play him up front with, with Curtis as well. I'm not sure about how he's going to fit as well with, with Marcus or not. Well, I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I thought of too because because he's not the playmaking striker. When I, when I watched, his, watched some of his um, chances and goals from last season for Coventry, he was in the 4-3-3, but he was always on the last defender every time. And when they hit on the break, he was in the right position every single time. So maybe maybe Marcus, yeah, to a certain extent, it can potentially work because Marcus is a complete forward. He can, he's very good at passing, deceptively good at passing, very good at winning the ball, uh, especially on the floor. He can drive at, at um, centre halves. His touch is 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 the one weakness for me, and and he gets in the right position. So it potentially can work, but I would rather. Hawula is the bench option coming on on the 55th, 60th minute to replace a Marquis if he's not playing very well. So he can, so he can use that full foot match fitness and full pace on the last defender running in. Yeah, no, I agree. 
Jack his jacket messages in. He says, looks good. Him and Hawula, best link up at nine. Hard to truly judge Curtis as he didn't play normal low nine. Kept drifting out to channels, but Harrison didn't. So couldn't tell who was positionally weak. Harrison struggled to have any real involvement would be my fourth choice. Choice is number nine. I think now he'd be my fourth choice too. Personally, <clears throat> he, 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 there was that one-on-one earlier. He had a decent shot that was blocked. I don't think he's a bad player, but I, I think it's just that whenever he plays, sports are one-dimensional, and I don't think it works. He plays to me when he's the he, yeah okay, it, it, in a 4-2-3-1. And he's a striker up front, and then you've got him up front, and then the other players around him get the goals and get the movement and move around him as such. I think he fits better as a lone striker if you're playing that system, almost in the same way that Pompey had with with Hawkins up top. Mm. He's not going to score your goals for you, but he might be able to set up the players around him. Yeah, he's got three three goals. One three goals this season from limited minutes. Yeah. I think the I think the only other up, uh, time you should play him is if, for example, you're against a very physical side, because he does one thing he does very well. He takes away defenders. He takes away that defensive midfielder because he's a nuisance. And if it creates room for other players, then it can work in a four four two. I think, but um, in limited circumstances. But hey, we're talking about depth and rotation, and that, and having an option like that is great. So no, I think so too. And it definitely is a time and place for him to play. Eddie messages in and he said, interesting, responding to Jacket Jacket's comment, I thought Harrison caused their centre-backs loads of problems. Between him and Curtis, Oxford really struggled to build from the back. When Harrison isn't being a nuisance like that, though, he doesn't really bring anything to the team. Well, he's not going to... He's not, he's not going to... He didn't um, make the sort of runs that Marcus would do. He wasn't in the right places where Marcus or a Harness or a Williams would be. He took a lot of defenders away, and sometimes it worked. But again, I think it might be a person might be a personal preference for me. But I'd rather have a different player next to Curtis, or play Curtis on the left potentially. I think Curtis needs more games up front, just to see, just to see. We've had, we've had a limited, limited sample size of him up front at the moment. Yeah, Portsmouth's finest. He doesn't really care. He says whatever the combination, just stick the two up front. <laughs> Wheeler and Curtis would be a lively partnership as was Marquis and Harness back in the day Paul Morling messages and says I don't think Hawula is the hard yards player Jacket likes do you think that's a fair point that there's maybe <sighs> the reason that Hawula is not making the side because he doesn't fit Jacket sort of feeling what he it's wants it's a bit stereotypical isn't it it's a bit stereotypical isn't it looking at a player and going oh is he physically capable of playing in this side is he really looking at Hewler going, ew, he's small, like he might have done with Connor Chaplin, <laughs> if you remember. Um, Not good enough for League One. Oh, don't, don't talk about that. Even though he, he's only scored one goal against no, in, since November, but we'll move on from that. Um, I, don't, yeah, I don't know why Hewler isn't getting the chances that I would expect he would get. Uh, it's not that I think he's the difference between Porto getting promoted or not. I don't think he's that good of a player. But I would have expected to see him subbed on earlier or starting the odd game if Marquis is out of form like he is now. There's an argument for Marquis to be not start again on Saturday. I don't. I, that's not a bad. That's not a bad sight on him. I just think he needs another rest, and then he can come in and with a full, with a fresh head and a fresh mindset. Um, 
And I do think I do think Fula should start, but I don't think he will start in this side. I really don't, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah. And why that is, I think... We don't know, do we? We're not going to know. We're not going to know. That's what I'm trying to say. Until potentially, if he doesn't get any games and he leaves at the end of the season, maybe he'll come on the podcast and tell us all. Wayne Harris messages in and he says, yes, I like Curtis Central. He likes to get involved. He works hard. He has an eye for goal, likes to run at defenders. If Jacobs is preferred on the left, then the fit, I still believe Curtis has to play. So if that means central, then do it. Yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to Michael Jacobs coming back in this side. He's um, passing. He's passing. Like we talked he's, about he's such Lyson. a technical player, isn't he? Imagine him with bias as well, though. <sighs> White's passing looked good as well, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, well, well, we, knew that White was a technical, we knew that White was a technical player. The only reason why people were dismissing him earlier is because they look at him and go, oh, it's a kid from Spurs who's played barely any senior football and we're a side that wants to get top two. But I don't think Kenny Jacket would have brought White in on loan if he wasn't ready, would he? No, and we know that he's supposed to be ready. We spoke to Lennon, who covers the Spurs Academy. We see what Spurs fans think of him as well. And yes, some Premier League teams overhype their young players. But he's not someone who's come out of nowhere. He's a known commodity they've been developing, ready to maybe one day bring back into the Spurs team. So he's not a player they're thinking about shipping out and, oh, off you go, let's forget about Harvey White. He's a player that they could see potentially making a break into their squad, into the squad at least at some point. Mm. So we've got these talented players and we need to be utilising them. But yeah, his passing, I thought in this game, sorry, just to go back to that, his passing the last game, I thought it was particularly good. He, he sort of spots the movement and got the ball going in a sort of progressive way going forward. That's what we need to see, whether it's Byers or White or Nicolaisen or whoever we're talking about. These sort of passes are going to make a big difference to Ports of scoring goals. Oh, precisely. And the more chances Ports will create, the more, more likely they are to score goals. Um Star strikers in, in this league don't take all their chances. That's bound to happen. And Marcus isn't going to take every single chance he's going to get every game. But the more he's the more he's given, the more the more opportunity he will, he will score when he plays. And I do think Jacobs will make such a difference to this side when he comes back. Him on the, him on the left, and Harness or Williams on the right with um, potentially Curtis up front. I think Jacobs is an underrated signing now. I don't know why I didn't rate him earlier on, but now he's not been in the team for a bit. I can tell that he's an exceptionally technical player. Two goals and two assists on his on the on the limited minutes he's had because of injury is very good for me. Yeah, let's bring him back. Bring back Jacobs. Where are you, mate? Come on, sort it out. <laughs> Darren Full messages in and he doesn't agree. He went, uh, no. To Vernon Curtis playing up front. Well, Darren. Everyone's entitled to an opinion. Fair enough. I can see why if he prefers Curtis on the left. Who knows? Why. Who knows where he, where he prefers him? He didn't didn't elaborate in his tweet. You might just oh. think, no, doesn't want him up front. Get him out. Or maybe know. he thinks he should play right back. Who knows? Well, maybe. Darren, message us at PO Forecast. Let me know. <laughs> where do you want Ronnie Curtis to play? Do you want him to play? <laughs> Who knows? Elaborate more, mate. All right, let's get into this. Freddie and me have now got a chat with Matt from the Jills in the Blood podcast and vlog. Go check it out for anything you want to do to do with Gillingham because he does some very good content over there. But let's get into this chat. All right, I'm here with Matt from Jills in the Blood. And Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast. 
Thanks for having me, mate. Nice to get to uh, put a voice uh, to a face that we see each other on Twitter all the time, but it'd be good to talk to each other properly. Yeah, exactly. It's never quite the same, is it, interacting over tweets and stuff? It's much better to ask three here to sit down and have a proper conversation and talk yeah, about... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, look, I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, massively. All right, let's start at the beginning. So what were Gillingham's expectations of going into this season and have, have they lived up to them? I always thought you guys would be doing a bit better than you are, to be honest. Uh, yeah, that's probably, uh, that's probably fair. Um, I did my season preview uh, back in the summer and I had to stand to finish eighth. I thought the recruitment was generally pretty good. Carl Dempsey, Jordan Graham, Dominic Samuel, probably players that we wouldn't have been able to attract if there wasn't a salary cap at the time. Um, Steve Evans, whatever your opinion is on him, he's got good contacts in the game. We've certainly been shopping in a different market to what we was under Steve Level and uh, Adrian Pennant before him. That's no disrespect to them too, but we were shopping in lower league and, and non-league circles, whereas Steve Evans has good contacts in the game and it's meant that we can go to these teams in uh, the divisions above or at least compete and uh, try and persuade players to come and play their football in Kent. But we've been consistently inconsistent, unfortunately, and for every performance where we go to Charlton and win or go to the stadium and light and get a good point, we then go and lose at home to Burton or lose away to Wimbledon. It's, it's, it's really frustrating because especially Tuesday night was a really good opportunity. I think we were the early kickoff. If we'd won that game, we'd have gone 10th for at least 20 minutes or so. And I think looking at the table after all the games had played, we'd have been 11th if we'd won the game. And it's frustrating because we weren't great on the night against Wimbledon, but we probably done enough to earn a point. And then unfortunately, Jack Bonham's let one through his hands in the last minute and you've got no chance of coming back after that. It's a decent hit, but certainly disappointing from a defensive point of view that, that we've shown the fella inside onto his favoured foot. And then to compound it, Jack's had a shocker, unfortunately. Our commentary team on the on the iFollow coverage was saying it's a really good hit. I know they get a slightly different angle to us, but it's a shot that he saves nine times out of ten. And unfortunately, it's two errors in consecutive uh, Tuesdays for our keeper at the moment. So not that I want to give too much away, but get it on target the moment you've got a chance. That's going to be yeah. a struggle for us at the moment, I think. Uh, getting shots on goal has been something that Pompey have actually been a little bit struggling of, especially quality chances and also finishing those chances. So that, that could be something that will be an interesting battle to see if we do decide to put shots on goal and shoot when needed. Just looking at the Gillingham team, would you say then, we're talking about individual errors from goalkeeper's perspectives, I think the personnel looks better um, obviously you bought in strikers like I thought Oliver was a strange recruitment when you bought him in I think from Northampton he's quite a good player up front in a sense he's quite tall isn't he sort of a target man um, and then you've got someone like Graham who plays on the wide for the, the ex-Wolves guy I yeah. thought he was very good um, he's got some good stats on key passes who would you say from the team up front is the is your spearman is it Oliver is, is, he, the, is he the man to finish off goals because... for you Start of the season, Jordan Graham was was brilliant, really, really good. And I think after sort of the first month or so, he was our top scorer comfortably. Then then for Dane Oliver got moving as well, and they're both up to eight. John Akindi couldn't get a look in, but he suddenly he's up to seven now and breathing down their neck in terms of, you know, trying to be top scorer. I backed John Akindi to be our top scorer in the, in that pre-season vlog that I've already alluded to, purely because of the fact that he's been around the block at this level. He's got a decent return for, you know, for an EFL player. I think it's about one in three over 450 plus games, which isn't, you know, it's not shocking. It's not Premier League. We know that, but that's why we watch League One and League Two rather than that level. But he wasn't getting games because of the form of the Dane Oliver. But 
Dominic Samuel got injured in December and that meant that there was a another opportunity for John. And, and to be fair, his form over the last two, three months has been pretty decent. I think he's got six in his last 13. Um, there's a couple of penalties in there, but I've always said goals is goals, isn't it? It doesn't matter. You don't get extra points for scoring a penalty or smashing one in from 35 yards. A goal's a goal. It only wins you one football match. It's always nice to you know, do what Conor Ogilvy did at the Valley a couple of weekends ago or what the young South End lads just done tonight. I've just seen that on Twitter as well. The Fed's about 45 yards out, but at the end of the day, though, it's one goal. It doesn't matter how it goes in. So um, we've got decent options, but probably not enough options. We haven't got that alternative striker at the moment with um, Dominic Samuel being ruled out for what looks like the rest of the season with a torn hamstring. Um, and that's then been compounded by COVID because it delayed his surgery because he caught coronavirus. And it's just a word that we've had enough of hearing, isn't it, unfortunately? But it's still having an effect and uh, it all looks a bit more positive for next season. But yeah, I'd say out of them three, it's, it's pretty even at the moment. But Carl Dempsey, middle of the park, has been absolutely superb. He's played in the championship and you can see why he's... I still can't believe that, that Joey Barton decided to let him go on a free transfer when he was the Fleetwood manager because he's... He's just class all over the pitch, whether that's work rate, uh, off the ball, two good feet, he can pick a pass and he's adding goals to his game and he's up to six as well now and I think four assists as well. So he's one to keep an eye on. So we have decent options, but I think what's hindered us all season is the lack of an experienced centre-back. Is, is Dempsey given the freedom in the midfield then? So he's your linchpin if you had to pick one. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, he's the one that keeps us moving. He's the one that keeps us ticking over. Don't get me wrong, he'll do his work going the other way towards his own goal. But we've been playing a diamond or a 4-3-3. And if we play the diamond, he comes from the side of that diamond. And obviously, if he's got protection in behind, then it gives him licence to bomb on. And if we play just a single striker in a 4-3-3 formation, then obviously he's the one that's, along with Ollie Lee, who's been playing in the hole, who's trying to get on beyond the centre-forward if they're winning the flick-ons and bringing others into play. So, yeah, Carl Dempsey for me and John Akindi probably the last two months have probably been our best two. But that's not to say that Verdane Oliver and Jordan Graham haven't had decent seasons, relatively speaking. You know, they're not going to get 20 goals a season like a Ivan Tony did or a, a John Kurt, a John Marquis may do or Ronan Curtis may do or um, Johnson Clark-Harris. That's who I was thinking of as well at Peterborough. Because... They cost money at the end of the day and Jules don't have a lot of money. Um, I know people laugh at our manager because he mentions it all the time, the lack of budget, but we do have a small budget and I still think that for everything that's going on this season, we're still having a relatively all right campaign. When we're a, Historically, we're a middle of the road, third tier side. We've spent 120, I think it is, 121 of our 126 years in the bottom two divisions aside from five years in the championship so it, again it comes back to it doesn't mean that I don't want us to be better and to get promoted but we are what we are where we are for a reason and uh, we have our place in the food chain and, and that's probably sort of mid-table in League One at the moment and it'd be great if we had a little late season charge for the playoffs but I just can't see it unfortunately at the moment You mentioned the need for an experienced centre-back and I looked at some stats earlier with Gillingham conceding 41 goals. Yeah. Uh, they've got the highest expected goals against in the league with 54. Obviously, it's, expected goals can be variable. Yeah. Are Gillingham a bad defensive side, in your opinion? And why do you think that is? Is it personnel? Is it just set up? I mean? just think it's... We, we let our captain go 
in the sum, not let him go. Obviously, Bristol Rovers got bought out and they decided to offer him more money and that's that's fine. And Max has decided to take, Max Aimer, I'm talking about the German centre-back, um, decided to go to Bristol Rovers. Our chairman decided that while COVID was going on that he couldn't offer contracts to anyone until there was a start date and there was something in place so that they knew that they was going to have some type of income or whatever that was back in the summer. So Max Aimer decided to move on. I just think that last season he played with Jack Tucker 95% of the time. So Jack Tucker had a regular partner. He's still only a kid this season. He's probably had half a dozen centre-back partners. It's only been since the January transfer window open where we got Robbie Cundy in from, from Bristol City on loan that he's that he's had a regular partner on a consistent basis. And that's shown, I think, until up till Tuesday night, the only defeats we'd had in the last month or two had been to Peterborough, and Lincoln, who for me, probably the best two sides that I've seen this season. Tuesday night's disappointing, but we're 30 seconds away from getting a point, which is never a bad thing on the road when you're not at your best. But unfortunately, when you lose the game, then people pick holes in the performance a little bit more than if you'd managed to keep a clean sheet. And it goes from being, oh, it's a decent point because you've not been great. To, that was crap. We've been beaten by Wimbledon, who'd lost five on the spin at home beforehand. So... There's a number of contributing factors, I think. I think the fact that Jack Tucker's young and he's now probably had to learn to be the senior centre-back because we brought in kids on loan that were even younger than him. Um, a lack of continuity in selection. Um, the fact that we've probably tried to be a bit more expansive going the other way because we brought in the likes of Kyle Dempsey and Jordan Graham and then Ollie Lee in January again. So that obviously leaves you more exposed at the back and and Stuart O'Keefe being injured probably for two-thirds of the season's had a massive impact as well. He's only just come back. He's ahead of schedule, but he's only been back a few weeks after breaking his leg in August. And that, that's had a, a huge sort of detrimental effect on the way we play because he's that type of player that, I mean, I think he had a spell with you lot a few years ago, didn't he? So um, gets in, breaks up play, and then just goes and gives it to those other ones that want to try and make stuff happen the other way. And without him, we've had to play a couple of different players, a couple of different combinations. And again, until Callum Slattery came in from Southampton in January and then it settled down again. And unfortunately, he's now out for a month because he did ankle ligaments on Saturday. So it's it just seems to be one thing after another. But that comes from the fact that I think a lot of teams, when it's not just us, we're playing Saturday, Tuesday a lot more than we normally do. And people are going to pick up strains and knocks. And the trouble is, if you miss a month at the moment, you're missing probably double the amount of games than if you miss a month in a normal season. Yeah. No, I, I I agree. I think it, I don't know if they're training injuries or are they are they injuries on the pitch. Are they are they, are they match injuries or people just pick? Stuart O'Keefe was a broken leg he picked up in the game. The fella caught him with a, a late tackle in a League Cup game against Coventry. Um, Slattery was a weird one. He just turned round. I thought it was really bad at first. Just turned round and, and rolled his leg with no one near him. And at first, I thought it was going to be something more major like ACL. And Dominic Samuels he, he ripped hamstring chasing a long ball in a home game. Carl Dempsey, first game of the season, took a whack, uh, damaged his foot. He was out for a month. It, it's just loads of different types of ones. But again, it all because everything's so condensed, I think it just means that, that players are all more prone to it. And it's not just us. I'm not just sitting here saying it's Gillingham. That's affecting every club, every club and every team up and down the land. And I'm sure we've all heard Jürgen Klopp talking about it, haven't we? So it's, um, it's a problem that comes because... We probably are playing too many games in a, t- a short space of time. Do you think that because you've had these injury issues, I was looking at the way you guys set up and you were talking about the diamond formation or the 4-3-3. I noticed when Samuel was playing, you had 
sort of Samuel and Graham either side of, say, Oliver or someone as a sort of standard sort of setup. Has Samuel going meant that you've had to change the system? Is, is there not a player that could play that? Or is it very much a mix-up of 4-3-3 one day and then the diamond well, we start, the next? Yeah, we had, beginning of the season, we started 4-3-3 and we started really well. And at the beginning of the season, I think it was Graham, Oliver, and then Trey Coyle, who we had on loan from Arsenal up until January. And then Dominic Samuel come in and took his place. And we were saying, well, let's get him through the middle. Why can't we play a 4-4-2? But the trouble is to play two up top, you've then got to accommodate a wide man in Jordan Graham because you're not going to leave him out the side. So then you play Alex McDonald, who can tuck in and then make you more defensively resolute, but then you look a little bit imbalanced. And then if you want to play the 4-4-2 diamond with Dominic Samuel fit, then where does Jordan Graham play? Because naturally he's a wide player. So then do you play him as the centre forward, which we done against Crew a few weeks ago and it worked. It just seems that and I don't want to keep saying the same thing, but every time we'd almost sort of settled on something and the way that something was working, a key player gets injured and then you have to reshuffle it. But that's part and parcel of the game. That's not an excuse. It's just that it's just frustrating. And Well, yeah, it's just frustrating. <laughs> that is it. It's just frustrating because I think when we've got everybody fit and available, we've, we've certainly got an 11 that should be in the top 10 in the division. But the trouble is when you can't spend loads on on backup players. And I, I used Peterborough as an example last week. We were 1-0 up at half-time against Posh. And if you'd watched the game as a neutral and not known who was second and who was 13th, 14th, you'd have thought we were the team that was challenging to go top of the league at full-time. And, and at half-time, we were leading, deservedly so. Unfortunately, then Jack Bonham decided to, to spill a straightforward shot a minute after half-time. But they're bringing on people like Sarike Dembele at half-time and people like that they cost a million pounds our old squad doesn't cost a million pounds nowhere near it so it's all about levels at the end of the day isn't it and um, I suppose being Portsmouth fans where you've been in the last few years and where you've sunk to and now you're starting to go back up again I suppose you've been the team that other teams have gone oh well we'd love to have the budget and the facilities of of Portsmouth Um, but the thing with that is with more facilities and with more budget and more ability to spend on players comes more expectation so then you have to win more games because the fan base gets on the manager's back a bit quicker. And I'd love to be sitting here and, uh, and watching Jill's moaning that Kenny Jackett's doing a poor job when you're sitting, I don't know, sixth in the, in the chat, in the table. It uh, must be horrible. Yeah, I mean, l- let's get on to that a little bit. So what are your thoughts from an outside perspective on the sort of job that Kenny Jackett is doing at Portsmouth? I think he's. I think he's doing fine. It's, but then it's, again, it's easier for me to say from an outside perspective, isn't it? Because I don't get to watch you every week. Again, I look as a Gilligan fan and think, oh, I'd love to be sixth in the table and moaning that I'm only in the playoffs and not in the top two. But, and like I've said though, but with budgets and uh, better players comes expectations. So obviously, you lot watch that football team every week, so you're probably expecting them to be in the top two and challenging to go up automatically because. It's only 13 years ago that Portsmouth won an FA Cup and then went and played in Europe. So to be slumming it in League One with a lot of other clubs that have, you know, been to the highest highs in the Premier League and are having to slum it with the likes of Gillingham as well. It's, um, I mean, it's great for us as lower league fans to see these big clubs coming and playing in our division. And it's, um, it's great to see them live, obviously, COVID world permitting and all that type of thing. But I think Portsmouth are a good side. I think they're well balanced. I think defensively they they look strong enough. Going forward, you've got really good options. The likes of Marquis, Ronan Curtis, Ellis Harrison, um, Marcus Harness. 
I think the middle of the park, you work hard, you win the ball back, you've got different types of centre midfielders. Andy Cannon was a player that I used to hate watching us play against when he was at Rochdale, but he's a good player. And I, I think you always say, if you're a fan and you're moaning about an opposition player, that's probably because they're doing a good job. And we had John Marquis on loan a few years ago and he was only a kid and he helped us stay up. Um, then he went to Doncaster and done really well, moved on to you guys and, and he's just gone from strength to strength. And it's great to see, but the trouble is he keeps scoring against us now, which is a little bit frustrating. But but our record at Fratton Park in the last three years is decent. So we'll see. It'd be, it should be a good game, I'd, I'd imagine. But I've had a look at your form and in terms of Fratton Park over the last half dozen, it's a little bit patchy, isn't it? But then we're up and down. If you'd probably asked me before Tuesday night, I'd have really fancied it. But then we get beat by Wimbledon and you think, hmm. But it should be a good game. That's, and, and I think Portsmouth, I think Kenny Jackett's doing a decent job. There's so many extenuating circumstances this season that we have to take into account. And I was thinking about it last night. I was listening to a, a Bristol Rovers fan on Instagram and she was saying after they'd lost about Joey Barton going in and, and saying, oh, we, they've lost and they're getting relegated and they think they're going to go down to League Two. And um, and I sort of started, it got me thinking, but but do you feel it as much at the moment? because it's so disconnected, because all we can do is talk to each other on Skype and Teams and Zoom and, and you know, watch games on iFollow on a telly, a laptop, a, a tablet or whatever. It, it, for me, personally, now as a Jules fan, now we've had the news that next season we should be getting back into football stadiums. It's almost like you just want to fast forward through the rest of this campaign. So, just wanted to ask from your point of view, like I was, because I was wondering whether this, whether she felt it like, did it hurt as much potentially getting relegated, but when you've not been going to games? And do you, like, do you fellas, like, get as excited about potentially getting promoted? Because it'd be horrible to get to Wembley, wouldn't it, through the playoffs and win at Wembley and not be able to go? I'm going to say that. Yes, in some ways, it definitely would be. I mean, as Pompey fans, we've been spoiled going to Wembley. Let's be honest. You know, we've been to... Uh, yeah, it's a fair point. You yeah. do go there quite a lot. So yeah, we, you know, won't hurt to miss it once. Oh, and you still get to go of... soon, but even though that's last season, isn't it? I mean, what a joke that is. The one-day champions <laughs> of, the, of the trophy no one gives a shit about, really. So uh, <laughs> Turned it into the Emirates Cup. <laughs> we're now the longest holders of the FA Cup after World War II broke out. And now we're now the longest holders of this, whatever you want to call it, checker trade, Papa John's, whatever trophy. No one's won it back-to-back. And we've now held on to it purely because of COVID. So we're now... You know, if Pompey win a trophy, everyone needs to look over their shoulders and make sure nothing's going to break out in the world, I think. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, how do I feel about it? I, I think that it's a, it's a strange situ- situation for Pompey fans. This is the last year of Kenny Jackett's contract. And this is a big reason why the fans are so vocal as well about what's going on. Because if we get promoted to the championship, you assume he gets, he gets re-signed and gets a new contract at the club. And if he doesn't, a lot of Pompey fans assume he won't get a new contract. That's not necessarily the case. Gonna put that out there. Sorry to anyone who's going to at me for this, but I think there's a lot of emotion going on because of that. It's if we were promoted and I'm sat in my living room, there's no doubt there's going to be a lot less emotion there than all the boys and and all the all the girls being together and, and really celebrating it. But in the back of my head, as a passionate fan, I still feel as passionate about it but i don't have any way of letting that out apart from talking to you guys on the podcast really yeah yeah it's all relative isn't it i feel slightly the same way would i feel different if Portsmouth got promoted if, if i was able to watch the games 
Yes, I wouldn't be as excited. It's a bit different for me. I live up north, so I don't get to go down to Fratton Park very often. You, on average, it's like once or twice a season anyway right, because, okay. of, because of cost. So usually going down to Fratton Park is like that big thing for the year. It's it's built up. And the fact that I, I don't get that potentially, especially for big big games, this, this season especially, it's rough. And I think the reason why many fans are getting angsty about it is because they feel like, it's going to be an end of an era for Portsmouth one way or another. If Portsmouth get promoted, it's the whole new challenge of, right, can we? Can this club stay in the championship at whatever position? If it doesn't happen, and let's say Kenny, Jacket, Kenny Jacket's contract doesn't get renewed and the majority of the 11 players out of contract this season go, you're going to go out to get a new manager, a new team, and then the expectations turn around again. And I, I, I think there's a... There's a lot going on. Uh, it's the equivalent of um, reading a long novel, and you're and you're at the last twenty or thirty pages. Yeah, I mean, so we've got we were missing. If you think of the players out of contract, we've got players like Tom Naylor, captain in the middle, out of contract. Jack Watmore, you know, best centre back out of contract. Craig McGivery, goalkeeper out of contract, and the list really goes on. And these they're just key players. That's the spine of your team. Your best centre back, your best centre midfielder, your bet, and your goalkeeper. That's the same with us as well. We're in exactly the same position. Jack Bonham, for all the mistakes he's made in the last couple of weeks, he's, he's still a good keeper. He's out of contract. I think Connor Ogilvy's out of contract. Uh, Jordan Graham, I think so. The thing that worried me was when we signed all these people in the summer, no contracts were disclosed apart from Robbie McKenzie, and that was done by his agency, not by the club. So the only one that we know is two years. So for that point of view, I'm assuming that everyone else has only been signed on a year's contract, which means we could be in a worse position this summer than we were last summer. Are you and worried about other clubs? see the likes of Jordan Graham or Carl Dempsey live at all and, and as good as they've been, that'd be awful because of the fact that we've just had to watch them on the telly. Are you worried about other clubs poaching certain players? I'm looking at... Oh, 100%, club, yeah, club, yeah, because there was, there was interest in the, in the January window and we've managed to rebuff it for Dempsey, Graham... Um, Stuart O'Keefe, I think, as well. That was that was a weird one because he, I think he'd, he'd literally just come back from the broken leg sort of a week before the end of the window. But Ogilvy would be a big loss. Bonham, Tucker. Like you say, it's the spine of the side again. If you're looking at a left-back, centre-back, keeper, centre-midfielder and your star player, so to speak, that's, that's half your team gone. And now that the salary cap's disappearing again, it looks like, then obviously it makes it even harder for clubs of Gillingham size to be able to attract that talent again. What did you think of the salary cap being removed? Because um, obviously a lot of people found it contentious because it was a hard cap where obviously every club um, at the maximum can only spend the same amount. You're going back to the original soft quote-unquote salary cap, which, which allowed for so many shenanigans of owners um, putting in, putting money in certain places so they can overspend. I was wondering what Yeah, that's the trouble, isn't it? I think there's so many ways around these things regardless of what gets put in place that if you want to spend it you'll you'll find a loophole somewhere along the line to be able to spend a bit more obviously from a club of our size it, it really helped because it meant that we could compete with bigger teams to to try and sign the likes of Jordan Graham and Carl Dempsey and people like that um, but at the same time if, if you've got a bigger club who's got an owner that's got plenty of money and they're still spending within their means and they're still following all the guidelines paying their staff on time and and all that type of thing, then I've got no issue with it. That's, that's you know, it's like me going shopping with £100 and moaning that you've got £200. If you're earning more than me, then you get to spend more than me. And that's the way of the world, isn't it? Unfortunately, that's how, how everything works. And um, 
if it was if we were all the same and all had exactly the same things to do and all agreed all the time, it'd be it'd be rather boring. So plus then from a little club point of view, when you do go to the likes of Portsmouth or Sunderland and pick up a draw or a win, you enjoy it a little bit more. And I think that's what lower league football's generally about, especially for a club like Gillingham. Because traditionally we don't win trophies. So well, I mean we've won two titles in our 126 year existence and they were sort of 40, 50 years apart. So our cup finals are going to like the stadium a lot or Fratton Park and that type of thing. And not cup finals, that's probably the wrong word because I'll get absolutely cane now. I've said that on Twitter, but never mind. But you know what I mean? It's, it's the big game. The game big game was a big day out. We, we don't get to play sort of Sunderland away every season or as a rule or, you know, potentially someone like Sheffield Wednesday next season. That's a massive club for someone like Gillingham to be visiting Hillsborough and with all the history and, and all that type of thing. So, the salary cap for me, it's neither here nor there. As long as clubs are spending within their means, then good luck to them, is my opinion. I think that's the main problem. It's the fact that the football, the EFL doesn't, um, seems a bit toothless in regards to owners coming in and spending money to have. govern it properly and then you get any Tom, Dick or Harry comes in and goes and writes, oh, I've got £50 million on the back of a cigarette packet and, oh yeah, you can you can own a football club. That's why we've ended up with Berries and Macclesfields and potentially South Ends and that type of thing because because the the powers that be don't don't know what they're doing and there has to be a massive overhaul in that sense and you've got to get ex players running the game I think because they know what it's all about that's the trouble at the moment you've got too many people that don't know what the game is the essence and the importance of the game and that sort of thing it's all detached there's no feeling towards the clubs that it's affecting type of thing it's just to them it's just a number and another statistic and they frankly, don't give a toss if they go out of business or not. That's quite interesting, though, because you're saying about getting ex-players in the game. Because you look at clubs like Salford, for instance, where, you know, Premier League players have got involved and invested. And you could argue they've not done it in a sustainable way at all. So do you think players... I mean, in terms of actually being in charge of the EFL. Oh, OK. Being in charge of the Rather than in the game as owners. Yeah. I mean, you've sure. got to get ex-players and ex-professionals that are in, in charge of it so that they have an understanding of... of what's happening within a football club because they've been in and around a football club at the moment. It's all right getting an ex-manufacturing you know, manufacturing director to come in and run the EFL. Got no idea about football. Got no idea in terms of what it means to a community. Take, for instance, like Steve Dale, who went to Bury, promised the earth, overspent, and then just let it rot. And you've now had a football club, a football community, and he's not had a club for nearly two years. That's, but the trouble is if what's coming from the top isn't good guidance, then people are going to keep taking a chance and getting away with taking these chances, unfortunately. Yeah, massively. And you've you just got to look at Portsmouth and, you know, we're a sort of a, we're talking about clubs like Berry and, and stuff like that. That could have been prevented. You know, mm-hmm. when we look at how loose the laws were with us and, you know, the people that were put in charge of us at one point didn't even exist. So, you know, arms trafficking, all this kind of stuff. And then you think that, We've got to this stage where, you know, clubs like Berry have gone out of the Football League. That was so preventable. I think that I think you're right. Something's got to change in that sense. Uh, changing the tone slightly, I was just going to say, I've got some really fond memories of going to, going to watch Gillingham play away. I mean, it's not too far from me. I'm on, I'm, I live in Surrey, so it's not too far to drive to you guys as well as driving down. But your away stand... I think we've played you quite a lot on, I think it was New Year's Day, Boxing Day, all mm. kinds of times. And it is freezing on the Medway when it's snowing. I remember just standing there the whole game, probably with the coldest place I've watched football at the time. And that's including in the Northeast. Um, 
is there any plans to develop that stand by any chance? Or you just yeah, I like that. Do you know what? I've been saying to Pompey fans, take the roof off the Milton End. We only put it on because we were promoted to the Premier League and they insisted we had a, a, yeah, a roof when on we the When we come to your place, used to be open-ended, open terrace as well, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Take, rip the roof off. That's what I'm saying. You guys aren't building a roof for the same reason, I'm guessing. There's a problem with us. We're not allowed because of the housing that's so close in behind mm. it. We can't plan to, we can't make it any bigger because it'll block out natural sunlight. And because our chairman keeps going on about moving to a new stadium, he's not going to touch it. But yeah, it is quite funny that it's been temporary for 18 years now. No, I like that. I think we should do the same. I think we got it from Sandwich, the golf course that has the open, because that's in Kent as well. That's where we got it from 18 years ago. And we was only planning to have it for sort of two seasons. And it's now 2021. And that was 2003. That's a very quaint town, isn't it, Sandwich? Yeah. On on off. Yeah, that's where the middle class people live. They don't let me there. The Gillingham fans aren't allowed in, right? Yeah, you don't give me in swinging my scarf around and shouting. No, <laughs> no Ch- Ch- Chatham's a different place, I assume. Oh, yeah, that's that's rough. Yeah, you can get me going. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> it's what it is, isn't it? Like anywhere, like you say, wherever you live, it's what you make it at the end of the day. So That's it, mate. Definitely. Um, Matt, let's get on to the game quickly. Let's have a look at the game from a score prediction point of view. And I'm going to put it out to you. What do you think is going to be your score prediction for the game on Saturday? Uh, I'm going to still try and remain a little bit positive uh, on the fact that your home form has been patchy over the last month or two um, and the fact that we've been decent there the last three seasons. I think we've only conceded once. So, And I'm hoping for a reaction after Tuesday night's limp defeat to Wimbledon. So I'm going to say one all. Nice. happily take a point at the moment. I mean, it would be disastrous for Pompey if we can't get a win and not because of the opposition, just because we need to actually win some games in a row consecutively if you want to even This is fine, yeah. I get. I had a chat with a Sunderland fan who said the same yeah. and it's not, they say, oh, we should be beating Gillingham and they don't mean it in a detrimental way and I don't take it that way. Some people might, but I don't. It's Portsmouth are in the top six. If you want to be getting promoted into the championship, you need to be winning at home against sides that are 13th, 14th and 15th and that's nothing to do with that being Gillingham. It's just whoever you're playing that's in that position. And I don't take offence to it. I think people sometimes get a little bit apologetic and they're like, oh, we don't mean it against you. And I'm like, you want to get promoted, you have to win football matches. So that doesn't matter whether it's Gillingham, Sunderland, Peterborough, Rochdale, Wimbledon, whoever, you've got to win football matches to get promoted. So, Yeah, we're slipping away at the moment. So we just need to try and get a couple of wins together and see if we can get it back on track. But Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast, mate. It's been it's been a dream speaking to you properly in person rather than... I really uh, well, enjoyed it. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah. Cheers for coming on, mate. Um, no worries. And yeah, speak soon. And you, mate. Take care. Cheers, Freddie. This podcast is a proud member of the FanHub 100. Football without fans is nothing, so we've partnered with FanHub to put fans first. Search FanHub app to play your part in the journey. Thanks, Matt, for coming on the podcast. And I'll be honest, Freddie, Ginningham are always a team that give me a little bit of worry before we play them. No matter what form we're in, they seem to be a bit of one of those bogey teams. Yeah, they're always a difficult side to play against. I know people laugh at Steve Evans and uh, and how and his mannerisms and how his team set up. But no, the uh, Gillingham players there's a, there's a lot of quality in that squad. I was just looking at he mentioned Dempsey when I saw him on television. Um, he he looked like a very very good player. Connor uh, Connor Ogilvy, excellent left back, who I mentioned should Portsmouth uh, should go after. So they have the they have the quality there to cause Portsmouth some problems, and if um, if some of the bad um, habits continue from the Oxford game and some of the games before, Portsmouth won't, won't win this game. That's what it's about, isn't it? We're talking about these these bad habits. 
it, to be fair, there's a lot of stuff that was, was cleaned up in the Oxford game as well. They need to be good enough, don't they? Good enough to beat Gillingham. We don't need to be superb, but it needs to be a game of not lots of individual errors and just sort of a professional good performance where we take our opportunities. Yeah, precisely. And no panicking. No panicking on the ball. No, try, just a bit of patience. There's no need to rush anything. If Portsmouth get the early goal, Portsmouth are always good when they get the early goal. They can control the tempo of the game then. It's when it gets like 70 minutes and they haven't scored where the panic sets in and they keep on pumping the ball on the left and right-hand side to the double-marked winger where we, we all get a bit frustrated. And do you think that it's going to be important, if they do play the diamond formation, which I think they might do to try and congest the midfield against us in that sense? Well, Porsche don't use the midfield sometimes. <laughs> a lot of times they just ignore the midfield, don't they? So um, if they play the diamond, that makes it a bit wor- worrisome. I know when Charlton played the diamond a lot, Porsche struggled. They lost a lot of games against that. I think the only way, maybe if they, uh, I think the best way to um, sort of sort of sort out the diamond is to just be flexible. If the midfield is getting seriously overrun, bring on an extra midfielder and play a four-three-three or four-two-three-one. If you start in a four-four-two anyway, or if you or if the players have got the energy, employ high press. Employ high press. Make sure the ball doesn't get to the diamond where they can control it in the middle. Yeah, we need to press the centre-backs as well. As he said, they're weak defensively. Let's get on the ball and let's get opportunities to shoot. Let's shoot, get them on target because we are lacking that sort of get the shots on target, getting shots through, creating quality scoring chances. Gillingham are there for the taking if we can do that, if we can create good opportunities in good positions and people need to get the ball on target. Oh, precisely. When when Portsmouth have a high XG and they and they get their chances, they usually take them. You're not going to get games like Bristol Rovers every every time where they get 2.8 XG and only score one goal. That's not going to happen. Portsmouth wouldn't be in. The, Portsmouth wouldn't even be in the playoffs if they if that wasn't happening. So, yeah, yeah, it's just the difference of high quality chances. If Portsmouth make those either from the midfield or from set pieces or wherever, then I think Portsmouth will be will be all right in this game. Yeah. All right, let's summarise this up, Freddie. Let's get our score predictions. Matt thinks it's going to be a 1-1. What's your score prediction? Ooh, tough. Good clean sheet last time. They look much better defensively. I'm not sure what back four they'll line up with. I'm going to go for a a bit of a cop-out. I'm going to go for a 2-1 win. And I'm going to say... I'm going to say that Ronan Curtis is going to get a brace because I think they're going to get, they're, they're going to keep him. They're going to play him up front again. And he looked like he enjoyed this role at centre forward. So hopefully that comes off in this game. Nice. So you've gone for a 2-1 win. I'm also backing us to win the game, but I'm going to go with keeping another clean sheet. I'm going to say we go for a 1-0 win. It's going to be that professional win I spoke about. Not overwhelming but a win nonetheless. And the goal for me comes from the centre of midfield and it's Tom Naylor from nowhere. (laughs) Picks up another goal. I think it's about time we get a goal from the midfield. Come on, Tom. I'm counting on you, mate. Let's get a goal. Let's get going. Another 25-yard screamer. Get that. 25-yard screamer, scissor kick, whatever you want to call it. I don't care. As long as the ball flies off his foot and goes into the net, I'm happy. But yeah, 1-0, Tom Naylor. Professional, professional game. That's my prediction. All right. 
Anyway, thanks for listening. Until next time. You have been listening to the PO Forecast for Pompey News Now. Available on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow PO Forecast and Pompey News Now on Twitter for more information. And there is the full-time whistle.